So today we start our new series in 2 Corinthians, which I've entitled Neon Gospel Corinthians Volume 2. We're going to be looking at the neon gospel, the good news that shines forth in 2 Corinthians. In this series, we're going to do what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we're going to behold the glory of God as it shines forth in the face of Jesus Christ. And, get this, we'll be transformed by the Holy Spirit. And that's good news, right? Because I don't want to stay the same. I don't like how I am. I don't know about you, but I don't like how I am. I hate the way that I am. I want to change. I want to be transformed. I want the Spirit to keep doing in my heart what He has been doing. And by God's grace, that will happen as we look at 2 Corinthians. Listen, real disciples confess their sin. Real disciples uh, want more than forgiveness. Real disciples want to change. If all you want is forgiveness and you don't want to change and you don't want to be transformed, then you really don't want God. You just want to feel better about yourself. 2 Corinthians is about beholding and transforming, beholding Jesus Christ and being transformed by the Spirit. So today, we're just going to do an overview of the book of 2 Corinthians so that you can get your feet wet. Hopefully, today's sermon will set you up to begin reading this book, to start digging in on your own, reading it at home, maybe even memorizing some of it, so that you have a better grasp of what was happening in Paul's life at the time that he wrote this book. And I hope you do that. I hope you start reading this letter over and over and over. So we're just laying the foundation today. We're just kind of flying over the book. Our big idea today for this introduction sermon, and it's a really a banner that could be raised over the entire book of 2 Corinthians. Our big idea is this. Boast in your weakness so that Jesus will be the hero. So that when people look at your life, you're not the hero. Jesus is the hero. Paul says this in one of the most well-known passages in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9-10. through 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I can't believe it says that, but it does. Paul actually boasts gladly of his weaknesses, 
He is actually content with weaknesses, content with insults, content with the hardships that have come into his life. He's content with persecutions. He's content with calamities. I don't know about you, but that's not me. I don't normally do this. In fact, it's not just contentment that Paul is talking about here, like the English Standard Version reads. I think the New International Version, the NIV, gets it right. It says, that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses. This Greek word can mean to take great delight in or to take great pleasure in. We see it in Mark chapter 1, verse 11 at Jesus' baptism when God the Father says, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. We see it in Matthew 17, verse 5 at the transfiguration of Jesus when God the Father also says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So God the Father was not just content with his son Jesus, content with him living a perfect life. He took great delight. He took great pleasure in his son. So Paul is not merely content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Paul actually takes great delight in them. But why? Why does he delight in these things? I mean, who does this? He tells us why. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me, and it's for the sake of Christ. It's for God's glory. Paul can rejoice. He can boast. He can take great delight and pleasure in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities because Jesus gets the glory. It's for the sake of Christ. And Paul knows that it is as he experiences all of these weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, he knows that he will also experience the greatest breakthroughs in his life because the Holy Spirit will come and invade his life and begin changing him. So Paul can delight in suffering. He can take pleasure in hardship because he knows that he will grow. He knows that he will be transformed. He knows that he will enjoy Jesus more as he experiences those things. Now, it's not that Paul's sadistic here. He's not. He just really wants to be transformed because he doesn't like who he is. And he really wants to enjoy Jesus more. So he welcomes suffering and hardship and weaknesses into his life. And if sufferings and hardships and weaknesses get him there to being transformed and to enjoying Jesus more, if they escort him by the hand to Jesus, who is his heart's desire, then Paul can delight in those things. I mean, think about that. That's a game changer for your life and mine. Your sufferings, your trials, your hardships, your weaknesses can escort you by the hand to Jesus, the one you love, Christian. And through it all, 
you will experience God's power and you'll be transformed and you'll enjoy Jesus even more. That's a game changer. So weakness is where Paul does his theology. And we should too. Weakness is the place where Paul does his theology. It's the practical lab of where he does his theology. He doesn't do it in an ivory tower. He does his theology in the middle of suffering, in the middle of pain, in the middle of overwhelming weakness. And that's why Paul will be driving home this point in his letter. Boast in your weakness so that Jesus will be the hero. In other words, lose your swagger. Listen, the church does not need superheroes. The church doesn't need disciples who are able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. The church especially doesn't need leaders or pastors like this. So this book will be a call to embrace your weaknesses, to rejoice in your weaknesses, to humble yourself, and to depend on the Holy Spirit so that Jesus will be the hero in your life and not you. Listen, there are so many Men and women of God that I love who have made a significant impact on my life. And I'm sure you have them too. But they are just humans. That's all. They aren't superheroes. They have pointed me to Jesus and I am grateful for that. But they aren't Jesus. Yes, it's true. I'm a Calvinist. I love John Calvin. I have benefited greatly from his writings. He is one of the greatest theologians that God has given to his his church. I love John Calvin. But I have not invited John Calvin into my heart. Another one of my favorite heroes of the faith, if you will, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars, Ralph Davis, says this, Your help is in the name of the Lord, not in the name of your favorite Christian hero. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Our help is in Jesus, not our favorite preacher or our favorite author or our favorite pastor. We'll unpack more of this as we go along. And who doesn't need this reminder That's why 2 Corinthians just so happens to be my favorite book in the New Testament. I love this book. This book has been a refuge for my weary heart at different times in my life. Heather and I both camped out in this book during seminary, and it got us through some very difficult times, health issues, problems, and things like that. This was our book where we lived all the way through seminary. So I fell in love with Paul's letter, 2 Corinthians, when I was in college. I spent the summer of 1994 in Ghana, West Africa, on a missions trip, and I took two books with me on that trip. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship and D.A. Carson's commentary on 2 Corinthians chapters 10 through 13, which is called From Triumphalism to Maturity. Here's a pic of his book. 
Don't let the cover fool you. That is one of the most boring book covers in all the history of book covers. I have a very vivid memory of driving down Camp Wisdom Road in Oak Cliff in Dallas, Texas to a Christian bookstore and buying this book before my missions trip to Africa. And I remember getting in my truck and looking at it and thinking, this is going to be a good book. It's a commentary. I don't know who D.A. Carson is, but this looks like a good book. Changed my world. I thank God that the Spirit of God led me to that book that day because I devoured this book that summer. I also fell in love with noted theologian and scholar D.A. Carson. I can't tell you how many times I've read this book over and over again in his commentary on the last four chapters of 2 Corinthians. D.A. Carson shows us that pride and pizzazz And self-promotion have no place in the church, no place in gospel ministry. Rather, ministry should be marked by meekness. Ministry should be marked by humility. Ministry should be marked by weakness and suffering. So there should be no whiff of triumphalism in the church. That's that's what was happening in the Corinthian church. Paul is trying to move them from triumphalism to a place of maturity. In 2 Corinthians, Paul will show us that pastoral ministry is marked by humility. In fact, we'll see that Paul is very reticent to speak about the wonderful things that God performs through him or reveals to him. Paul is very cautious. He does not want to draw attention to himself at all. He understands that ministry is for the sake of Christ, that it is for God's glory, and it's not about him at all. Paul knows that ministry is about connecting people to Jesus and then just kind of walking away, not hanging around for compliments or attaboys. Paul wants, in this letter, Paul wants to connect the Corinthians to Jesus and then kind of slowly walk away. Unlike a group of super apostles, a group of false teachers who have invaded the church at Corinth. More on them in a moment. So what's going on in 2 Corinthians? What's the story behind it? What led to this letter being written? Let's familiarize ourselves with it. As I said, the author is the Apostle Paul. Written around fall of 55 AD or spring of 56 AD. Here's the background of the church. And all of this information we'll put online later. My whole sermon manuscript will be up. So if you just want to sit and kind of get an overview, that's fine. Paul planted the church at Corinth on his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 18 in 51 AD. He stayed there for a year and a half, and then he moved on to the city of Ephesus. The church in Corinth, if you've been a Christian for very long and you know your New Testament, you probably know this was a very immature church, which is why Paul is trying to move them to a place of maturity They were a very immature church. They had major problems. There was some form of an incestuous relationship happening in the church. 
There were cliques where people gravitated to certain pastors. They were getting drunk when they took the Lord's Supper, getting drunk when they celebrated communion. They were full of pride. And so we do have to ask ourselves, do we really want to be a New Testament church? Not this one. So while he is in Ephesus, Paul gets a few emails about what's going on in the Corinthian church, and so he writes a letter to them. This letter is now lost. We don't know what happened to it. We don't know what was in it, uh, but it's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Then Paul writes a second letter to the church, which is our 1 Corinthians, and he's writing to deal with the problems that are in the church. Paul will then visit the church in what he later calls a painful visit it was painful because he had to rebuke the church for sin and worldliness and challenge them. Paul, after this visit, Paul returned to Ephesus and he writes a third letter, which is now lost, like the first letter. This letter is mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. This was the painful letter where Paul again had to reprimand the church. It pained Paul deeply to write this painful letter to this church because he loved them so much. Well, then a riot happened in Ephesus in Acts 19, and Paul is almost killed, so he leaves for Macedonia. And at this point, Paul tries to meet up with his friend Titus in the city of Troas to get a report on what's happening in the Corinthian church. Paul wants to know, how did they respond to my painful letter? But Paul could not find Titus in Troas, so he's even more deeply concerned about the Corinthians. Eventually, Paul meets up with Titus in Macedonia, where Titus tells Paul that the Corinthians actually responded well to his painful letter, and now they're really concerned about Paul. But Titus also tells Paul there's a new problem that has popped up in the Corinthian church. The invasion of a group of false teachers, these super apostles, as Paul calls them, they had arrived and they began undermining Paul's ministry. So after Titus fills Paul in on the details with the Corinthian church, Paul sits down to write the book of 2 Corinthians from Macedonia. This is now his fourth total letter to this church that we know of. Numbers 1 and Numbers 3 were lost, and so we have number 2 and 4, which is our first and second Corinthians. Did that confuse you? Sermon manuscript online. All right, the nature of the letter. Let's talk about that. 2 Corinthians is a very personal letter for Paul. He wears his heart on his sleeve. He bears his soul to this church that he loves so deeply. His love and his care for this church that he planted just seeps through every page of this book. It's true pastoral care. Now, we don't know exactly who these super apostles were. Perhaps they were a group of Judaizers who were devout Jews who would come into churches and try to get Gentile Christians to submit to and to adhere to the ceremonial laws of the, Testament, of the Old Testament, the Mosaic law, like circumcision and food you can and can't eat and clothing you can and can't wear. It may be who they are. But whoever they were, these false teachers were undermining Paul and his ministry by saying things like this about him. Paul's a bad speaker. He's a terrible communicator. The guy just can't preach. Can't believe you guys listen to him. 
Paul is bold through his letters, but when he shows up in person, this guy's a lightweight. He's tough when he writes his letters from far away. Ooh, he's real tough, but he's a weakling when he shows up in person. Paul doesn't boast and brag about himself, which is what preachers are supposed to do. Paul is fickle. He told y'all he was going to come visit you, and then he changed his mind. Can you trust a guy like this? And finally, they were saying things like, Paul can't be a true apostle because he's suffering so much. A true apostle wouldn't be experiencing all of the hardships that Paul is. So those are some of the accusations that come out in this letter that are being leveled against Paul And the Corinthian church is starting to buy into it. They're actually being dazzled by these super apostles. So Paul writes to them to let them know that his suffering as an apostle is the very means that God uses to reveal and display his own glory. Paul is letting them know that his suffering in his life, like it is for us, is the very means that God uses to reveal and display his glory in our lives. Paul knows, in contrast to the super apostles, Paul knows that ministry is about exalting Jesus and not himself. He says this in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 5 and 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, But Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, he has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Notice that Paul, in contrast to the super apostles, he does not proclaim himself. He's not out tooting his own horn. He's very reticent to speak about things that God's doing in him and through him because he doesn't want to draw attention to himself. He's not out tooting his own horn. He preaches Christ crucified. Paul humbly preaches about Jesus, not himself, so that he kind of disappears from the scene and only Jesus is admired. The goal of Paul's preaching is that Jesus would be admired and not him. Paul's doing this for Jesus' sake, not his. And notice too here that the treasure is the gospel. That's the treasure, not the jar of clay. The jar of clay is not the treasure being presented to this church. The clay jar is weak, fragile, cracked, barely holding itself together. But the treasure, the gospel, which is ultimately Jesus and all that God is for us in Jesus, the treasure here gets all the glory, not the cracked, fragile, about-to-fall-apart clay pot. But these super apostles were making ministry about them. They thought they were the treasure 
They were making ministry all about them. They didn't want to hear the name Jesus. They wanted to hear their own name. They wanted their name in lights and not the name of Jesus. It was all about them, how powerful they were, how gifted they were, what great speakers they were, and that is completely antithetical to the gospel. Life and ministry is about God's glory, not ours. So the purpose of the letter, Paul is writing to express his relief that the Corinthians had actually responded well to his painful letter. He's glad about that. Number two, to encourage the Corinthians to complete their promised financial collection for the suffering church in Jerusalem. They told Paul, we'll take up an offering that you can then take to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering in Jerusalem. So he's writing to remind them, get that ready so that when I show up, I can take it on to them. He's writing to prepare the church for his visit and helping them see that they need to separate from these super apostles before he shows up. And number four, to give the Corinthians a detailed report on his ministry, on his sufferings, because they had become concerned about him, and to defend the validity of his apostleship and his ministry against the, the so-called ministry of the super apostles. So the theme, the major theme of 2 Corinthians is suffering and how God's glory is seen in our lives as his grace sustains us through suffering. Paul will demonstrate from his own life and ministry that God's grace is sufficient for weak, suffering Christians. The main theme then could be summed up like this. The weakness of man exalts the power of of God. So this is a book about suffering and how God's grace is sufficient. The word that gets translated as is sufficient in 2 Corinthians 12:9 means to be enough, to satisfy, to be a good match for. God's grace is enough for us when we suffer. God's grace can satisfy. It's a match for all that we are suffering. So 2 Corinthians is a book about how God gets all the glory when he is enough for us. God gets all the glory when weak sinners depend on him and not on their own PR, not on their own swagger. So this book is 13 chapters of this reminder. Boast in your weakness so that Jesus will be the hero. Rejoice and take delight and take great pleasure in the fact that you are weak. That you are not able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Listen, the church does not need superheroes. It does not need super pastors or super elders or super deacons or super leaders who wear capes. There's only one hero here, and his name is Jesus. We are just broken, fragile jars of clay that point to the real power, that point to the real superhero. 
So we should never boast in our gifts or boast in what we do for Jesus. We're actually called to boast and to rejoice in our weaknesses. It's plural, really. To bo- I say boast in your weakness so that Jesus will be the hero, but really it's weaknesses, plural. Boast in your weaknesses. But why in the world would we want to embrace and boast in our weaknesses? Why should we boast? Why should we rejoice in our weaknesses? I mean, who wants to be weak? And who actually rejoices in their weaknesses and hardships and sufferings? Why would we do that? Because when we do, God's power rests on us. His power comes down. Like God's glory in the Old Testament, His power comes down and rests over our lives. That means then that the sweet spot of life and ministry is not when things are going great. The sweet spot of life and ministry is recognizing and coming to grips with your weaknesses and your helplessness and then trusting Jesus' ability to meet your need. If you're like me, the sweet spot in life is when everything's great. Everything's going well. That's what I tend to think the sweet spot in life is. It's not. The sweet spot in life and ministry is recognizing and coming to grips with your weaknesses and your helplessness and then throwing yourself down on Jesus and trusting him and his ability to meet your need. And then experiencing in real time his power resting upon you. That's when God's power floods your life. Discipleship. Contrary to what these super apostles were saying, discipleship is just collapsing on Jesus. It's realizing that 2 Corinthians 12 is the normal Christian life. That's the normal Christian life. Weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. So you better get used to it because that's what it means to follow Jesus as a disciple. It's weakness. And if you can stomach that truth, you can swallow it whole, then weakness actually becomes the sweet spot in life and ministry because number one, God's grace will invade your life and number two, God will then get the glory. And that's what life and ministry is all about. God being glorified. So think about it. If you can stomach that truth, that weakness is the normal Christian life, then weakness, the thing we all hate, the thing we all want to avoid, it actually becomes the sweet spot because that's when we get connected to the Holy Spirit and His power. Realizing just how weak, needy, and dependent you are can be a good thing because you get Jesus. It seems like a scary place to be. All the time. But the fact of the matter is that that is reality for us. It's where we are, whether we admit it or not, whether we know it or not. The problem comes when we try to do life and ministry without Jesus, without collapsing on Him, and we try to do it in our own strength and in our own wisdom. That is when we get in trouble and make a mess of things. Neediness and weakness is what qualifies us 
for God's 2 Corinthians chapter 12 sufficient grace. So the thing that the super apostles hated, weakness, helplessness, dependency, neediness, humility, that's actually what opens the door for God's sufficient grace to flood into our lives. Listen, a real disciple doesn't mind being unimpressive. A real disciple, a real Christian, doesn't mind if people think that they're unimpressive. They're okay with that. Their identity is not wrapped up in their resume, wrapped up in their giftings, wrapped up in their talents, wrapped up in their job. Discipleship is this. I'm okay with being unimpressive. You know why we push back against that? Do you know why we want to be impressive? Why we want people to think we're all that? Why we want people to be impressed by us? You want to know why we push back against weakness? You want to know why we aren't thrilled and enthralled by God's grace? It's our high view of ourselves. Grace becomes non-amazing when we have a high view of ourselves. Swagger turns amazing grace into non-amazing grace. It was their high view of themselves that made grace non-amazing to these super apostles. I mean, who needs grace when you're all that? But when God's grace invades the life of a weak Christian, we won't congratulate ourselves on a job well done. We won't pat ourselves on the back. We won't go searching for compliments. Instead, we'll just sit in amazement at the grace of God. We'll be dumbfounded that God could use someone like me for his glory. We'll just be dumbfounded by that. I can't believe God, you use me. I'm an idiot. You use me for your glory? Grace doesn't give you the power to toot your own horn or to congratulate yourself. Grace empowers you to simply kind of just stutter in amazement. I, I, I can't believe to stutter in amazement that God works through you for his glory. This is what the Corinthian church desperately needed to hear. These super apostles, which Paul will directly address when he gets to chapter 10, even though he's subtweeting them all along. And please understand that Paul is subtweeting these super apostles all along in his letter. So all through this letter, Paul is just undoing the theology of these super apostles verse by verse by verse, even though he doesn't explicitly mention them until he gets to chapter 10. So it's kind of like the Jenga game, you know? You're just pulling one little piece out at a time. That's what Paul's doing throughout this whole letter until he gets to chapters 10 through 13 where their whole world will begin to fall down. So he's just subtweeting them all the way through the first nine chapters of his letter. Well, these super apostles needed a copy of a letter that Charles Simeon wrote to a friend. Charles Simeon was born in 1759, 
1836. In this letter, he was writing to a Mr. Thornton. Charles Simeon highlights the temptation for pastors to make ministry about them. He says this, A thousand thanks to you, dear sir, for many valuable observations in your last letter, especially that which I long to remember, that ministers, when truly useful and more perfectly instructed in the ways of God, are off their speed and not so full of their success. Alas, alas, how apt are young ministers, I speak feelingly, to be talking of that great letter, I. It would be easier to erase that letter from all the books in the kingdom than to hide it for one hour from the eyes of a vain person. Another observation in a former letter of yours has not escaped my remembrance. The three lessons which a minister has to learn. Number one, humility. Number two, humility. Number three, humility. How long are we learning the true nature of Christianity? The super apostles were obsessed with the letter I. They were full of themselves, full of their success, boasting all the time. And Paul is writing to recalibrate this little church and remind them that life and ministry is all about the glory of God and to remind them that the true nature of Christianity is humility, humility, humility. I love the humility of Ray Ortland another person who has had a significant impact on my life. I love his openness when he says this. In a way, I wish I could be a formidable, always successful, always smart, always witty, always energetic, always cool, always positive super pastor. Then people would admire my astonishing wonderfulness and then I could always feel good about myself. I would love that. It's one thing Jesus is saving me from. How does he save me? He reduces me to weakness and need and he allows me to see it for myself time after time. Then and only then do I humble myself and ask him for his grace. Then and only then is he exalted as my super savior. The super apostles were presenting themselves as formidable, always successful, always smart, always witty, always energetic, always cool, always positive super pastors. They wanted people to admonish their, uh, admire their astonishing wonderfulness and then they could feel good about themselves. And this is how they were beginning to disciple the Corinthian church, that this is what Christian life is about, always being on, always being on. But Paul comes along to rescue his beloved church plant from this nonsense. Paul passes on this rich pastoral wisdom to this little church that he loves, and he says, boast in your weakness so that Jesus will be the hero. And here's why. Here's why Paul and why we should boast in our weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Because it draws us closer to Jesus. That's why. 
because it draws us closer to Jesus because these experiences take us by the hand to Jesus. So we humble ourselves as we come to grips with our weaknesses and we run to the one who is our only hope. As we endure insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, those things actually draw us into a deeper love relationship with our Lord. We come to know him and love him more. And that's why we can rejoice. Because we get more of Jesus. As we endure all of these things that we naturally resist, we actually come to enjoy the one who lived and died for us. The one who lived a perfect life that we could never live. And the one who died a perfect death that we don't want to die. Our hearts, through these experiences, if we will humble ourselves, instead of getting bitter and angry and hardened or despairing, our hearts can be drawn to the one who loves us and gave himself for us. We start to relish in in even deeper ways the truth of 2 Corinthians 5.21 that for our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And when we are drawn in more to love and enjoy and experience our Savior, then our joy grows because God's name is glorified in our lives and not us. So weakness opens the door to sweetness fellowship with Jesus. Let me say that again because somebody needs to hear this today. Weakness opens the door to sweet fellowship with Jesus. Weakness opens the door to the Spirit of God. Understand this, the Holy Spirit is connected to our weakness, not our swagger. That's how Christianity works. The Holy Spirit and our weakness go hand in hand. So when you realize just how weak you are, that's the part that you play in all of this. There you go. All that you're called to be is weak. What's God's will for your life? Be weak. That's it. And then you connect your weakness to the Spirit's power. That's the role you play in this. That's what 2 Corinthians is all about. The Spirit comes and attaches himself to our weakness The Spirit is all about that 2 Corinthians 12 strength made perfect in weakness business. That's what He lives for. The Spirit loves weak people. Those are His favorite kind of people. People who are pulling their hair out and saying, I can't go one more day. Those are the people the Holy Spirit loves. The Holy Spirit loves you. When's the last time someone told you the Holy Spirit loves you? Maybe you've heard that God the Father loves you. Maybe you've heard that Jesus loves you. When's the last time someone looked you in the eye and said, the Holy Spirit loves you. And he loves to help weak people who feel like they can't make it one more day. Those are his favorite kind of people. That's what he lives for. 
that's when the glory of God, the glory of the gospel shines forth like a neon sign. It's like what scholar F.F. Bruce said when he paraphrased 2 Corinthians 12, 9 this way. My power is most fully displayed when my people are weak. God's power is most fully displayed when his people are weak. Let that sink in and believe it today. God's power is most fully displayed when we're weak. God's power is not most fully displayed through our swagger. It's not most fully displayed when we put on superhero capes. The church doesn't need superheroes. So let's stay humble. Let's stay low before the Lord and just camp out there in humility. And let's pray that we have the swagger actually kind of gospeled out of us. And then let's just sit back and Watch what the Holy Spirit will do with expectation, eager expectation. I've humbled myself before the Lord. I'm trusting in Him. Now I'm going to sit back and wait. And I may have to wait a while, but I'm going to sit back and wait and watch what is the Holy Spirit going to do. I don't know, but it's going to blow my socks off. The super apostles knew nothing of that kind of power. They knew nothing of the gospel's power. All they knew was trying to be impressive. But genuine, gospel-centered, authentic Christianity does not produce a race of superheroes wearing capes who have somehow managed to rise above need. Genuine, gospel-centered, authentic Christianity produces weak, needy sinners. And so if you feel weak and needy and you feel overwhelmed today, then 2 Corinthians is the book just for you. If you feel like you are unable to handle what life is throwing at you right now, then 2 Corinthians is just for you. It's the Holy Spirit's love letter to you. Pick it up and read it. Let me ask you today, where are you weak What are you absolutely unable to do in your own strength? Where do you need the Spirit to empower you? Do you feel overwhelmed today? You feel overwhelmed? Like you can't go on another day about to pull your hair out? Great! That's awesome! That's an awesome place to be because that's the sweet spot. That's where the Spirit says, I'll meet you there. I'm not going to meet you in your swagger. When you're done doing your little swagger, thinking you're all that, I will meet you at your place of brokenness and desperation where you're pulling your hair out and saying, I can't go on another day. That's where the Holy Spirit plans to meet you. That's where you'll find the power of God. So embrace it and ask Jesus for help and ask Jesus for power and he will flood your life with his grace. Listen, you will never move beyond This place of desperation. You'll never reach a place where you feel like you can handle it. You might think so, but it's not true. You'll never reach a place where you think, I can handle life. This is Christianity right here. Power made perfect in weakness. God's power most fully displayed through his overwhelmingly weak people. That is discipleship. And so let Jesus save you from you today. There's nothing better than that, right? 
Let him reduce you to weakness and need and then humble yourself and ask him for his grace. Then and only then will he be exalted as your super savior. And when that happens, when the power of Christ comes down and rests upon you in all of your weaknesses, guess what? Everything gets better. You really begin to live. You quit obsessing about you and you finally start to live. So go ahead. Boast in your weakness. Boast in your weaknesses, plural, so that Jesus, singular, will be the hero in your life. Rejoice and take great delight. Smack dab in the middle of your weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Rejoice because you have an all-sufficient Savior who is ever ready to help you. Rejoice in your weakness so that God's power will rest on you and so that Jesus will be seen as the hero in your life. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, we need to confess our sin because we have tried to live life as if we could manage it. In fact, we just want to kind of make life manageable. Uh, Not so great. We just want to kind of be in the middle of the road where it's manageable, where we functionally feel like we don't really need you. And we need to repent of that. We repent, Jesus, from resisting our weaknesses and hardships and and not wanting to go to those places, not in a sadistic way, Jesus, but just wanting to be free of need. And that's so antithetical to your gospel. And so we humble ourselves. And as we go through this book of 2 Corinthians, would you just kind of help us to camp out in the low place, getting low before you and opening up the empty hands of faith and saying, help, Lord. For those of us who are really struggling today, who really feel like, I can't go on one more day. I pray right now, Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would just come down in power and rest upon their life and give them strength and grace. We want to honor you and we want to glorify you and you alone in this church, Jesus. So would you help us not to mess this up? Would you keep us humble and keep pouring your spirit out upon us for your glory and for our good? In your name we pray, amen.